All right, thank you, Brother Anson. You know, uh, before we look at the word today, I just wanted to share something quick. Um, God is just so amazing. Uh, he can encourage us in like so many different ways, but two nights ago, um, I had this dream of being in worship service here at The Promise. It was a different venue, but it was a worship service. I was so encouraged by that dream because it was such an amazing service. Uh, at one point in the service, there was even a wind blowing, like this strong wind blowing through the service. And I got to share this because Richard and I did not talk at all. But in that dream, Richard was leading worship, and the song he sang was 10,000 Reasons, the song we just sang. I just cannot believe that. I was like, what? what? I cannot believe he chose that song today. And we haven't sang that in like a long time. And I just literally dreamt that two nights ago. And I remember in that dream waking up, and I even shared it with my wife, I really had the sense of God doing a new thing in our church. Amen? So God's doing a new thing. I just had to share that. I, it's just amazing how God sometimes just speaks and encourages you. But praise God. Open up the uh, Bible, your Bibles, to Matthew twenty two thirty five, and then Matthew twenty four thirty six. So please open up your Bibles. Matthew twenty two thirty five, and then Matthew twenty four thirty six. If you're joining us here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, I want to say hi. And also, it's going to be on your screen at home. But Matthew 22, 35 through 40, and then Matthew 24, 36 through 39. Okay, this is God's word. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, talking about Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Amen. Okay, Matthew 24, 36 through 39. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, Lord, and we give you worship because you are worthy. And we thank you that you are here, you are with our church, Thank you, Father God, for the, the specific and, and little ways even that you encourage us, you remind us again that you are with us, and Father God, your word clearly states it. So Father God, we don't even need experiences so much, but they help. But Lord God, your word makes it clear that you dwell in the midst of your people, so we worship you, and we ask you, Father, right now, please speak through this word, make it clear, make it convicting. Father, hide me behind your word, and let us understand what is your will for us in the last days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, we are continuing our series, a short little series called Love in the Last Days, and the reason for this series is because this entire year we've been looking at the theme, which is being the church, and I just wanted to make it clear before the year winds down. And after this, we're going to actually be going into an, another whole series. Uh, we're going to be going through a book in the Bible. But before we end the year, I wanted to make it clear that there is a context for being the church. But there is a context. We are not called to be the church in a vacuum. 
but rather we are called to be the church in the last days. Amen? So there is a context. But what is the last days? Well, many people, they tend to think of the last days as the time immediately before Jesus comes back. So they might think of it as, yeah, something way out there in the future. Maybe it's not now. But it's the events surrounding Jesus' second coming. And yes, that would be true. That is the final part of the last days. But technically, in the New Testament, the last days is the entire period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. It is the final leg of God's redemption, his plan of redemption. It is the period of time when Jesus' return is imminent. Okay, I talked about this two weeks ago. Okay, what that means is Jesus can come back at any moment. Why? Because there's nothing left in God's plan of salvation that needs to happen. Yes, there are some end-time events that are laid out in Scripture, but in terms of his salvation plan, there's nothing left. So technically, Jesus could come back tonight. So his return is imminent. Okay, those are the last days, and these are the last days. But some of you guys might be thinking, but this has been 2,000 years, right? Jesus' first coming? All the way to his second coming? I mean, this is a long time. So does it even matter? Well, Peter warns us about having that kind of attitude. But he said in 2 Peter 3 and 3, In the last days, scoffers will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, the world is just going on like it's always went on. So where is his coming? But then Peter reminds us that to God, a thousand years is like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. And so God is not slow in keeping his promise to return, but he is being patient. Why? So that more and more people can come to faith in Christ. But Peter makes it clear, but when Jesus finally does return, he's going to come how? Like a thief in the night. In other words, he's not coming to break and steal your radio. Who has radios anymore? <laughs> he's not going to come to steal your laptop. But he's coming unexpectedly, suddenly. When you least expect him, he's going to come. Like a thief in the night. So does it matter that we are in the last days? Are we trying to be the church in the last days? Absolutely. Yes, it matters. Even if it's been 2,000 years, Jesus could come back at any moment. And in fact, the Bible says more about the last days than any other time in history. That's how important it is. It talks more about this time period than any other time. So for example, turning now to our passage in Matthew, but Jesus gave one of the most significant teachings on the last days in Matthew 24 through 25. The entire section is Jesus' fifth and final discourse. A discourse is just basically a sermon or a teaching. But this is his final discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. His first discourse was the Sermon on the Mount. But this is his final one in Matthew 24 through 25. And he left, I believe, the most important thing at the very end. And this whole thing was the response to the disciples' question in Matthew 24, 3. But they were kind of walking along the temple, and then Jesus said, see these stones of the temple? Not one's going to be on top of another. And then they asked, Lord, when will these things happen, the destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And so Jesus answered them. And we get from Jesus' answer perhaps the most significant teaching on the last days okay, from Jesus himself. And so he goes into it in Matthew 24 and 25. And this is an amazing passage, but here Jesus was simultaneously describing near future events. Okay, events that were going to come in just a few years. 
In AD 70, the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Romans. Okay, he's talking about that. The near future. But at the same time, he was also describing distant future events. I'm talking about in our day and even beyond our day to when he's going to return. But he was talking about both simultaneously. And he was saying, something's going to happen, you guys, in the near future. But something even greater that is similar to that is going to happen in the distant future. And guess what? We are living in these days now. Jesus was talking about these days. And so this was an amazing discourse. And we already saw how Jesus, in this sermon that he gave, said, in the last days, lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. So this is one of his key descriptions of the last days. And so this is what we're talking about in this series. As lawlessness goes up and up and up, the love of many will grow colder and colder and colder. So we already looked at that, but there's something else I want to look at that he talks about in this passage, in this sermon he gave. But here's another description of the last days. But he said, and please pay attention, as my return gets closer and closer, this is what the world's going to look like. And everything he says is absolutely true. But he said it's going to look more and more like the days of Noah. Like the days of Noah. Jesus said, but concerning that day and hour, talking about his return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He said, as my return gets closer and closer, he's like, pay attention. The world you're living in is going to look more and more like the days of Noah. So in the last days, as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return, we are going to be like in the days of Noah. But what were the days of Noah like? Well, Jesus already gave a partial explanation, but in order to get the full picture, you've got to go all the way back to the story of Noah in Genesis 6. We're not going to look at the whole story, but let me just point out a few passages. But what does Genesis tell us about the days of Noah? Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined, in other words, I've decided to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the waters. So the word corrupt is mentioned several times there, right? So in the days of Noah, if nothing else, it was a day of corruption. There was corruption throughout the earth. But what kind of corruption? Well, we're told what kind of corruption just a few verses back in Genesis 6, verse 4 and 5. So please stay with me. But these are the days of Noah. So it was a corrupt time. The entire earth was filled with corruption. But what kind of corruption? It says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So somehow they survived the flood. How? Well, there are some different theories. We're not going to get into it. You can ask me afterwards if you're curious. But they survived the flood somehow or they came back after the flood. And these Nephilim, they came. And then when the sons of God came, into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. So the Nephilim were produced when the sons of God, 
basically came to earth and saw the daughters of men, and then they came together. Okay, they, they made it, and they had children. These were the Nephilim. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this is weird. Okay, this is so weird. This is one of the most bizarre passages in the scripture. And it just mentions it and it moves on. But every word in the scripture matters. Amen? Okay, anytime you read something in scripture, you got to slow down and pay attention and ask questions. But what is this talking about? I mean, this is mysterious. But at least from these verses, we can know some things. There was, first of all, a widespread moral corruption. And in addition to that, there was some sort of spiritual cor corruption. And these characterized the days of Noah. So first, there was widespread moral corruption. It's clearly stated in verse 5. Look at, the, look at that verse. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, every day they wake up and what is going on in their hearts? They're thinking about things that are against the will of God. They're living their lives and what are they going after? What are they thinking about all day long? Things that are contrary to the will of God. That is what is filling their minds, filling their hearts. And so in the days of Noah, the sinful nature in human beings had very little restraint. The Bible talks about how God in his grace restrains our sin. But for some reason in these days, there was little restraint. There was little restraint. And so the sinful nature was really being expressed. And this resulted in widespread moral corruption. It says here, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Okay, not just in the small plot of land, not just where Abraham was, but throughout the entire known earth. And so even today, remember Jesus said, as my return draws near, you are going to be living in the days of Noah. I don't think it's hard to see the parallels today. But the known earth today is much bigger now, right? I mean, there are way more people. We know way more about the earth now. And yet moral corruption, even with the world being that much bigger, it is widespread. It is widespread. See, it was much easier for corruption to spread in the ancient world. There weren't as many people. Much harder today, and yet it is widespread today. And it is becoming more and more. As we live in this interconnected world, as travel is becoming more and more easy and convenient, internet, communication, all of that, Corruption is widespread. And in fact, as Jesus' return draws closer, it's going to increase. So I'm talking about everything from sexual immorality, greed, violence, pride, rebellion against authority, a number of many other things. They will continue to grow. I'm sure you can think of examples for each and every one of those, right? Even just the other day, I was just on the news. and I, I mean, I just can't even read the news anymore. There was a woman in California somewhere, because of a fight, a domestic fight, she got beheaded? Some woman, I think here in Southern California, she got beheaded by her ex-boyfriend. I mean, it's like, I can't even read the news anymore. I mean, it's just horrendous, the things that you read. But this is increasing, it's, it's growing. Paul described this moral corruption like this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, church. Okay, Paul told this very clearly to the early church. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, Check. I mean, you could just check these things off. Lovers of money, 
they're just going to love money, right? Go after money. Their whole life is centered on making money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. They're going to be ungrateful. Where's my rights? Right? How come I don't get more free stuff? Right? Why is it so hard to live, even though I live in the richest country in the history of the world that's ever been known? Right? Why is it so hard? Unholy, no concern for God, heartless, compassion and love decreasing, unappeasable, nothing's going to satisfy them, slanderous, mocking people, saying things against people, making fun of people. Have you ever been on Twitter? Reddit, Facebook, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Oh, are they religious? Oh, yeah, many are religious. Do they go to church? Millions go to church. But they have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul said, please understand, in the last days, this is what it's going to be like. So this is what we're talking about. Jesus said in the last days, as my return gets closer and closer, you will be living in the days of Noah where there is widespread moral corruption. And it's going to grow. And on its own, that is bad enough, but it doesn't end there. But if you go back to that Genesis 6 passage, there is another kind of corruption that is mentioned. But this moral corruption was energized and made worse by another kind of corruption. It was a spiritual corruption. So look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And these Nephilim, they came about, they were produced when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These were the giants. These were the giants that the Israelites saw when they went into the land of Canaan. This is who David fought, Goliath. But it was this race or this group of people that were persistently the enemies of God's people. So these were the Nephilim. So before the moral corruption, the Bible describes this spiritual corruption that energized and intensified the moral corruption. So it wasn't just, oh yeah, in the days of Noah, people, they just kind of wanted to have fun and they were just kind of being bad. Because sometimes Christians, we look at this world and we go, yeah, the world is not the greatest place, but people, they're just sowing their wild oats, right? They're just kind of living their lives and kind of being bad but maybe they'll you know, get it out of their system one day. No, okay, please don't be that naive. But there was a spiritual corruption energizing. It was behind. It was intensifying and making worse the moral corruption. But what was this, right? This bizarre event that took place where the sons of God mated with the daughters of men and then through this unholy union came these children called the Nephilim. In the Nephilim, I mean, there are different debates of what that means, but in the Hebrew, it sounds like the word nafal, which means to fall, fall down. So some people say it could mean the fallen ones, that's what it literally means. But in Aramaic, it sounds very close to the word giant. So some people say, no, it means giant, and that's why you'll see different translations. It's either the fallen ones or the giants. Maybe it's both. Maybe God left it ambiguous that way. But these were the Nephilim. And they came when the sons of God mated with the daughters of men and the sons of God, by the way, were not believers. See, when we hear that, we immediately think, oh, the sons of God. Aren't we sons of God and daughters of God? It's talking about Christians. No, it's not. Because in the Old Testament, sons of God is never used to describe believers. Never. 
But rather, in the Old Testament, sons of God is always used to refer to what? Angels. Angelic beings. You see that in places like Job 1, Psalm 29, Psalm 89, other places. But sons of God is always a reference to angelic beings. This is how Jewish scholars in history have understood this term as they study the Old Testament, but it refers to angelic beings. This is how the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translation into Greek, even Jesus quoted from it, very authoritative. But this is how the Septuagint translates sons of God. It translates it as angels into the Greek. So this view of sons of God as angels who took on human form, and by the way, angels do that, right, don't they, in the Old Testament? They take on human form. Even Jacob wrestled with an angel. How do you wrestle with a spirit that doesn't have a body? Well, you wrestle with an angel if it has a body. The two angels that came into Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, the men saw them, they were beautiful-looking angels, and they wanted to do things to them. And then the angels pull Lot back into the house. How does a spirit pull a man into his house? Only if they have a body, right? So these angels apparently in Genesis 6 also had bodies. And they came and they mated with the daughters of men, which just means women. Women living here on the earth. And so I know this is very bizarre, but this is the picture here. But what am I trying to get at? The point I'm trying to make is through this bizarre event, this unholy union between these angelic beings and women on the earth spiritual corruption entered the earth. And through that spiritual corruption, it energized the moral corruption. Okay, this is the consistent view in scripture. So as you see moral corruption in our day and all the insanity and the craziness, I mean, again, I don't need to go through the list of all the insane things happening in our culture, in our world today. Please do not think, oh yeah, that's just people being people. It's just people sowing their wild oats. Okay, there is a spiritual Corruption, energizing it. And so this is what's happening here. Okay, these Nephilim, this was spiritual corruption into the human race. And they became the persistent enemies of the people of God. And some Bible scholars actually believe that these Nephilim were related to the seed of the Satan figure, the serpent, in Genesis 3.15. So after Satan tempted Eve, she ate the fruit, right? And then she gave it to her husband, Adam, and then he ate the fruit as well. They disobeyed God. And then afterwards, God judged Satan for causing all that. And this is what God said to Satan, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed. Can we just kind of skip over that? Your seed or offspring... The ESV says offspring, other translations says seed. And her seed, her offspring, he shall bruise, meaning the offspring shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so all of us, we read that and most of us, we know, oh yeah, the seed of the woman, that's Jesus. Yay, Jesus, we're waiting for him. And we kind of skip over the other seed that is clearly mentioned. There are two seeds. Yes, the seed of God is coming, the seed of the woman is coming, that is Jesus Christ. But God says, there's another seed, your seed, Satan. I already know what's going to happen. And your seed is going to be an enmity. It's going to be at war with my seed, which is my son. So who is that? What is that? The seed of Satan? What is that? And so here, 
Bible scholars say, well, this seed, this offspring, can be understood literally, perhaps. Okay, a literal offspring of Satan, a lineage of Satan, people living here on the earth. Or it could be understood metaphorically. Maybe like when Jesus called the Pharisees, you are the offspring of your father, Satan. Right? You're not the children of Abraham. You're the f- children of your father, Satan. Right? So it could be metaphorical. It could be literal. We don't know. But whatever the case is, Satan has offspring. And these offspring are corrupting the world. I know this sounds very bizarre. This isn't a normal sermon on a Sunday you will hear, right? But come on. This is in the Bible. It's in the Bible that you carry around for many, many years. And every word in Scripture matters. And so what is my point? Well, I believe that the Bible teaches that the enemy from very, very beginning has been corrupting this world spiritually through his offspring, whether it's metaphorical, literal. Perhaps the Nephilim is one of the examples of his offspring. The sons of God, these angelic beings coming and having this unholy union with the women on the earth, producing these offspring. I mean, what is that? Perhaps that could be one example. But whatever it may be, I do know this. The Bible teaches that the final culmination of the seed of Satan is clear. It is the Antichrist. And I believe this actually is a real person. And this person will come towards the end as Jesus' return draws near. But long before he comes, we already talked about this. His spirit is already here. His spirit is already here and is at work preparing the world for his coming. His spirit is already here corrupting the world. So there is a spiritual corruption in our day. And the point is, most believers don't even think about it. They don't think about it. They don't pray for protection against it. They don't live their lives as if it's even real. And yet we look around and there is massive corruption, moral corruption everywhere, and there is something energizing that, brothers and sisters. I mean, I don't care if you never come back and this is the weirdest thing you've ever heard. Look at your Bible. Study your scripture. But there is spiritual corruption. And this corruption deceives It persecutes, it strategizes, it's building movements and institutions, all of it contrary to the will of God. It is energizing the moral corruption that we see. And that's why this stuff just doesn't go away. It's not just a phase. Okay, later when you are an old person and your children are living their lives, it will still be here and even in greater ways. Why? Why is that? Why does it never go away? Because there's something energizing it, right? And so I think most Christians, they kind of have a vague idea that, yes, maybe the moral corruption that we see is more than just people being bad. It's more than just people going through a phase, right, or being confused. I think they kind of know, yeah, we fight not against flesh and blood, powers and principalities, so they know that verse. But what they don't understand is that the Bible says so much more about it. There is specific verses and truths and statements being made about this spiritual corruption that is energizing, empowering all the crazy stuff we see, all the moral decay we see. And this is profound, and it is propagating. It is mysterious, yes, but it is real. It is real. This is what we deal with. And if you're going to withstand it, then you need to have more than just good morals. Oh, I'm going to just be a good person and go to church. You need much more than that. But how do you deal with spiritual corruption? You need spiritual resources. You need spiritual resources. You know, just the other day, I I talked to a person who said, you know what, Um, I'm a Christian, and I've been coming to church for a long, long time. Not this one, but another church. But please, please pray for this family member. 
she's young, she's now entering her young adult life, and she just came out as trans, and she no longer wants to be a girl, but she is a boy. And she is very confused, and she is struggling, and she doesn't go to church anymore. And it's like, what, what, what is going on? Okay, why is this increasing? Oh, it's just a phase. No, it's not. Again, there is a spiritual corruption behind these things. And so we need more than just, oh, I'm just going to be a good person and go to church. Maybe I'll try to read the Bible. Okay, you need spiritual resources. We need God's truth. We need the fullness of the Spirit more than ever. Why? Because we are living in the last days. We are living in the days of Noah, brothers and sisters. So this is increasingly true. These are the mark of the days of Noah. But there's something else. There's also distraction. So there's corruption, but there's also distraction. Look at verses 36 through 39. Jesus, he's so loving. Okay, he just tells us exactly what we need to hear. But he said, concerning that day and hour, my return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware. Think about what Jesus is saying. Judgment is coming, and by the way, Noah was building the ark for a hundred years. For a hundred years, Noah, everybody saw what Noah was doing. The word was spreading. There's a weird man building this gigantic boat in his yard. You can see it for miles. It was a sermon for a hundred years going out. And for a hundred years, people knew that. And yet, what are they doing? They are distracted. They are going out, hanging out with friends, eating, drinking, getting married, marrying people off. Again, nothing wrong with any of that. But they are just busy living their own lives. That's the point. And they were doing that until the very day Noah walked into the ark and closed the door. And the flood began to come. And they all perished. They all perished. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. So what is this? This is massive distraction. And in fact, they were so busy living their lives, they couldn't even hear the word of God. Again, Noah was preaching the word of God. He wasn't just hammering wood together. But he took a hundred years to build this ark. When we first meet him in Genesis 5, I believe, he was 500 years old. And then when it tells us he entered the ark, how old he was, he was 600 years old. So he was building this ark for 100 years. And during that time, he was doing more than hammering wood together. But it says here he was preaching righteousness and judgment, 2 Peter 2.5. If God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald, another word is preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. But the point there is that he was a preacher of righteousness. So these people, they just even couldn't hear the word of God. Why is that? They're distracted, right? They are living their lives. Oh, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't have time to go to church. I mean, the Bible is just a weird book. Okay, well, I mean, when do I have time to study this weird book? Or even go to church and listen to it. I am just living my life, right? I'm hanging out with friends. I got to get my career going. I got to finish school. And those things are important, yes. But I'm just living my life. And then the flood came. You know, in 2022, people around the world are watching a total. I'm talking about this year. People around the world are watching a total of 1 billion hours of YouTube per day. <laughs> you thought that was per year. No, per day. This year, every day, 100 billion hours of YouTube. That's insane. 
In 2022, this year, about 300 million people are watching Netflix. And the average amount per day, three and a half hours. Every day, come home, three and a half hours, Netflix. 2020 to 2021, people spent $1.1 trillion for international and domestic travel in the U.S. That's just one country, over a trillion dollars on just travel. I guess the pandemic hasn't really hindered much, right? In 2021, Americans spent $876 billion eating out. That's almost a trillion dollars eating out. Again, I guess the pandemic is over. <laughs> a lot of people eating out. In 2020, this is a little bit older, two years ago, Americans spent $57 billion on video games. On average, they spend about 16 and a half hours per week on video games. And this is all the way from like teenagers to 65-year-olds. I was like, whoa, 65-year-olds, go grandpa, right? 16 and a half hours on video games? I wish I had that stamina when I'm a grandpa. <laughs> it's like, wow. So I'm not saying that these things are bad. Christians should never do them. That's not the message. But I'm simply pointing out, look at the sheer volume of time and money people are spending on these things. To what? For what? This is a massive distraction in the world. We are living in a culture that is massively distracted amongst a people massively distracted. So again, like in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the very day when Noah entered the ark and then they were unaware when the floods came and swept them all away. So they had no idea what was coming. Why? Because they were distracted. They were morally and spiritually corrupted and so they couldn't even hear the word of God. Even though God gave them a hundred years to repent? Are you kidding me? Noah built that ark for a hundred years preaching. You guys, this is coming. I'm telling you, judgment's coming, flood's coming, repent. You can join me on this boat. It's a very, very big boat. Hundred years preaching. Nobody paid attention. Only seven people were saved plus Noah, eight in total. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So that's the, that's the, that's the message. Okay, everything you read about in Noah's day, this is our day, brothers and sisters. And it's going to increasingly be that as Jesus' return draws near. So as believers, here's the question. What can we do in the face of such corruption, such distraction? Okay, what can we do? Well, we can't run away. Where are you going to run away to? Okay, where are you going to move to? <laughs> I mean, some Christians, they try to, you know, protect themselves from corruption, and we should. But, but really, where are you going to go? The entire world increasingly is going to become like this more and more. So where are you going to run away to? Well, we're going to get rid of it. Well, how are we going to get rid of it? How are you going to purge it? How are we going to even decrease it from the world? How are we going to do that? Yes, there are things that we should do as believers. If there's injustice against somebody, we should definitely fight that. We need to show love. But how are we going to get rid of it? So what can we do? All we can do, and the Bible is very clear, all we can do is be prepared and stay faithful. Stay faithful to God. And wasn't this the testimony of Noah? This is exactly what Noah was preaching. But he was prepared by being faithful. He simply lived his life doing what God called him to do. For a hundred years, that was his life. And he and his family were saved. So Jesus, he encouraged his disciples, do the same. You are living in the last days. Be like Noah. Do the same. We know that because in Matthew 25, the next chapter in that sermon he gave, 
Jesus gave two parables back to back, and both were basically giving the same message. Be prepared. Be faithful to God. Okay, you're not going to run away from this stuff. You're not going to like purge it, get rid of it. All you can do is be prepared and be faithful to God. He gave one parable about a master who had a lot of servants, and he went on a journey. But before going, he trusted them, entrusted his house to them. Take care of my house, take care of my stuff. And in that parable, he came back suddenly one day when they didn't expect the master to return. So that was one parable. The other parable was about the ten virgins. They were waiting for the bridegroom. They were waiting and hoping to go into the wedding banquet. Five were wise, five were foolish. The wise were prepared. That's why they were wise. The foolish, they were unprepared. And when the bridegroom finally came, they weren't ready. And the bridegroom said, who are you? I don't know you. And they were shut out into outer darkness. So you see clearly, Jesus is giving the same message. Again, you can't run away from this. You can't get rid of it. You simply need to be prepared. You need to be faithful. So are you doing that? Do you realize we are living in the last days? Are you prepared? So then what is God calling us to do, right? What is the requirement then? How are we going to be faithful to God? And this is just the second half of the message. I'm going to just kind of run through this. But it's to love him. Amen? So that's the whole series. Love him. Matthew twenty two thirty five. 35. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So there it is. How are we going to be faithful and be prepared? As we go deeper and deeper into the last days, as the days of Noah are rising all around us, what are we going to do? We simply love the Lord with everything we are and love our neighbor. So briefly, before we close, I just want to ask, are you aligned to this first and greatest commandment? Right When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, are you aligned to that? Is your life showing that? Let me ask a, a series of questions. But is the first and greatest commandment your first and greatest blessing? Is it your first and greatest blessing? I'm talking about when you think about your life and all the things that you see as a blessing in your life. And I know you guys pray for blessing because I do too. God bless me. What are you praying for? Are you praying for God, give me this job? And you should pray for that. Those are, those are you know, legit. <laughs> those are good prayers. God, help me out of this situation. It's very hard. God, I'm sick. Heal me. Yes, those are all legit. But then what is your greatest, your primary blessing that you are desiring, that you are praying for? Well, I remember this one pastor sharing this very honestly, but he's like, the greatest desire in my heart, the thing that I always ask God for is, God, make me a lover of God. Make me a lover of God. Do you know how precious that is? You know, the other day, uh, Jill was watching this video uh, with like three big heavy hitter spiritual leaders you would know them if I mentioned their names. But they were kind of having a discussion around a table. And I didn't even listen to it really. It was my wife. I just kind of walked past. But all I caught was one of them saying, isn't it amazing that we can be the friend of God? You can be the friend of God. This holy God who created heaven and earth, he's going to judge the living and the dead one day. He will melt this earth with fire one day. Even the angels that surround his throne can't even look at his face. They cover their faces with one wing, cover their feet with another pair of wings, and then they fly with a third pair. 
Another weird picture. <laughs> but even the angels around his throne can't look at this God, and yet the Bible says you, puny little you and puny little me, you can be the friend of God. Do you take that as like reality? And God, if that's true, if I could be your friend, I pray, make me a lover of God. Make me a lover of you. This is my greatest blessing. This is my greatest blessing. And why in the world would God command us to love him? He try that with anybody else. Try that with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend. Hey, I command you, love me. See how, tell me how that goes. It's not going to go very well, right? But how in the world does God get away with that? Well, the reason why is because God is the only being in created in, in all of creation who has a love where if you love him, you are going to be incredibly blessed. You're going to be blessed. Why? Because he is the only being in this universe who is utterly satisfied in his own love. He is utterly and completely satisfied and complete in his own love. And so when he says, I want you to love me, what he's really saying is, as you come to me and love me, I'm going to share this love with you. See, if you command somebody else in your life, love me, it sounds very, very selfish. That's why people get turned off. They might even hit you. Right? Get out of here. It, it just sounds so selfish. But see, for God, it's not selfish. Because if you come to him and begin to love him, you will experience his love. You will begin to understand how utterly satisfying this is. And I'll be brutally honest, so many Christians have no clue what I'm talking about. You have no idea what I'm talking about. It is as, you know, as far from you as me talking about some alien species living on Mars. Like, what are you talking about? I, don't, I have no idea. The love of God. You have no idea. And even me, I forget, and I get glimpses of it here and there, and yet this is what the Bible consistently says. If you would even get a taste of his love, your life would be transformed. Listen to King David, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. His presence is where you have his love. In your presence is fullness of joy. I would argue most of us, if not all of us, we don't have fullness of joy. Maybe a little joy. Not fullness, though. But David said, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. I'm maxed out in joy. That's what he's saying. You know, you go into your car. Don't you love the picture of your gas tank? Boom, max. <laughs> Especially these days. It's like, oh, I don't ever see that these days. But I love that feeling, right? You turn on your car, and then the gas dial is all the way to the max. That's what David is saying. My dial of joy is to the max. My tank of joy and then listen, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And why are human beings so distracted? Why are they running around in their lives, going from here to there? Why are they even coming to church? Because they're thirsting for pleasure. They're, they're longing for some kind of enjoyment, fulfillment, pleasure in life. And look at what David says. It's you, God, in your presence is fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. They don't end. In other words, my joy tank is maxed out. And my pleasure that I get from you, it never ends. It never, ever ends. And again, Christians, so many have no clue. They have no clue. They read these words like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what this means. I just don't. And my encouragement is you can, though. You can know. So what are we talking about? Is the first and greatest commandment your first and greatest blessing? Do you understand what God is offering you? 
God, more than anything else, a career, yeah, that's good. Money, yeah. Even a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, yeah, those things are good. Maybe you're wanting a child, yeah, those things are wonderful. But more than anything else, God, I want you. I need your love, right? You are my greatest blessing. So is that true? Second question, is the first and greatest commandment your first and greatest calling? What are you aiming for in life? Where are you going after? We all have things, right? If I were to say, write down your top three priorities in your life right now, or goals, what would you write up there? What would you share? Well, let me give you an answer, <laughs> the right answer. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Another translation adds strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so I take from those words that this is calling. So this is more than anything what we are to go after. Okay, this is my priority. This is my goal. In fact, this is even my greatest achievement in life. Okay, if you were to think about your life, what would bring the greatest satisfaction and fulfillment to you? Yes, once I get this, I made it. Right, what, what would cause you to say, I made it? Again, this answer is not going to connect with so many Christians, but is it God? Once I have God, yes, I've made it. I've made it. I'm in this love relationship with him. I experience his love. My joy tank is to the max. I have pleasures that never end. I've made it. See, this is my calling. Yes, I'm called to be a pastor, a father, a mother, a teacher, a doctor, a businessman. I'm called to do a lot of things, but this is my greatest calling. When I wake up, yes, I might not think about it every day, but deep inside, though, I do think what I need, what I want more than anything is I need to be with God. That's my calling, to love him, to be a lover of God. Again, God's offering this. You could be a friend of God. You could be a lover of God. So is this your greatest calling? Third question, is the first and greatest commandment your first and greatest act of obedience? Okay, a lot of you guys, you guys are believers who care about serving the Lord and you want to obey him. But too many times our obedience is centered on what we're not going to do, right? Okay, I want to obey God. I don't want to do this. I want to obey God. I don't want to do X. I don't want to do Y. I don't, right? It's just focus on what you don't want to do. And a few times maybe it is focused on, yes, I do want to do this. I do want to do this. I want to go serve the homeless. I want to maybe sign up for something at church. I want to do this. Read my Bible. And those things are all wonderful. But what is your first and greatest act of obedience? Again, let me suggest to you, loving God, loving God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. So right there, he states two powerful truths. First, he says, true love produces obedience. True love produces obedience. So here, Jesus takes love for God out of the realm of the subjective and emotional. Okay, this is what keeps Jesus from becoming your boyfriend. I've heard, you know, when I was in youth group, uh, sisters, you know, some of the girls there are saying that. I'm like, it always sounded kind of weird. Jesus is my boyfriend. Okay, this is what keeps you from saying that. Or guys saying, Jesus is my homie. He's just my homie, right? This keeps you from saying that. Why? Well, then you better obey your homie. <laughs> you better obey your boyfriend. Because in fact, this person who is your friend is the king of kings and the lord of lords. 
So what am I saying? This is your greatest act of obedience, loving the Lord. This is your greatest act of obedience. And as you obey God, he, he opens his heart to you more and more. And so this love relationship just keeps growing as you obey him. It keeps growing. See, it's no coincidence that when you're in a season of obedience, what happens? God shows up, right? He begins to show you things. He'll even speak something to you in the word. You know, situations will work out where you're like, oh my gosh, God's doing something. It's no coincidence. And then when you're not obeying God, what happens? You don't experience that. Okay, why is that? Well, God's like, well, I can't trust you right now with these things. You're not obeying me. You're not following me. So I'm not going to open my heart up to you even more. See, it's a relationship. It's a real relationship. And so this is the first thing he says. And then the next thing that he's implying here is true obedience is motivated by love. True obedience is motivated by love. So not, the, not only does true love produce obedience, true obedience is motivated by love. And so he said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. See, love comes first and then obedience. See, we don't obey our way into loving God, but rather we receive God's love first and then we obey. This is very clear. But Paul said in Romans 5.5 5, that he has shed his love abroad in our hearts. And so have you received that love? You know, I love this example that John Piper gave on this. But he said, suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. So let's say I come to Jill and I say, Jill, do I need to kiss you every night goodnight? <laughs> and then the answer is, yes, you must. Well, I don't know if she would say that, but John Piper's wife, I guess. Yes, you should, you must but not that kind of must. Not that kind of should, right? And we get what she means by that. Yes, you should. This is something required, but not that kind though, right? And what she means is this. Unless a spontaneous affection for me motivates you, your advances are stripped of all moral value. In other words, if there is no pleasure in the kiss, the duty of kissing has not been done. These are Piper's words. So what is he saying? His saying... Giving duty to God, obeying God. If it is not motivated by love for God, it doesn't really count. That's what it's saying. In other words, it's kind of like saying, I don't care about God. You know, I don't really want to be with you. But gosh, I should do this, so I'll do it. That'd be like the husband that says, oh, I have to kiss my wife every night. Okay, I'll do it. Right, you're not really doing it then, even though you're doing it. And that's so different from somebody that says, you know what, it doesn't matter Okay, what is required of me, what is not required of me, whether I feel obligated or not, I just desire to do this, and so, do you, so then you do it. And that person has truly obeyed. So love is the true motivation for obedience. So is that true of you? Okay, is loving God, the first and greatest commandment, your first and greatest act of obedience? Okay, when you think about obeying God, you should think of this before anything else. I gotta love God. And I don't wanna just love God out of duty, but out of a desire in my heart. And then finally, last question, and we're going to close, but is the first and greatest commandment, the first and greatest work of the Spirit in your life? Do we want the Spirit, amen? Okay, even that, that dream I, I shared, I had two nights ago, I was like, wow, Holy Spirit, you're with us in our church. And I thought about a lot of things. Spirit, bring revival. Spirit, do this and that. But even before any of that, is this the greatest work of the Spirit in your life? Holy Spirit, help me to love God. Help me to love God. You know, I heard a pastor say this once, but it takes God to love God, and it's absolutely true. You can't love God on your own. 
And that's because there's no way you can stir love up for God in your heart. I mean, try it right now. Okay, leave from this place and say, okay, I'm going to love God starting right now. Right, right now. <laughs> okay, right now. Okay, as soon as Pastor Roy says, amen, you're done. I'm going to love God. Okay, you can't do it. I can't do it. And that's because there's nothing in the natural man or woman that wants to love God. We don't desire God. We desire everything else but God. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one desires God. And yet, the amazing grace of God, the miracle of all miracles, is once you put your faith in Jesus, once you reach out to him, Romans 5.5, but God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for us. And the moment you believe in that, the Holy Spirit comes and you begin to love God. So when you pray and you say, Holy Spirit, work in my life, is this the first thing that comes to mind? Holy Spirit, help me to love you. Help me to love God because it takes God to love God. And so these are the questions that should be ringing in our minds. Why? Because we are living in the last days, brothers and sisters. We are living in the days of Noah. And so we need to make sure that our love remains hot and that it will not cool down. You know, I close with this quote by R.T. Franz. He's a very uh, respected Bible scholar. But he said, the cooling of love marks the end of discipleship. So the moment your love for God cools off, you're no longer walking as a disciple. So let's make sure that's not happening. Amen. Let's come before the Lord. Father God, we just want to come before you, Father, today. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for just the clarity of your word. There's no denying it, Father. We are in the last days. And the world is not just going as it's always gone. The moral corruption we see all around us, it is not just a phase. But Lord Jesus, your word is so clear. But there is something behind it. And there is something behind the history of our world and is driving it somewhere. Yet the world looks the way it looks for a reason and is being driven somewhere. All the way to the revealing of the man of lawlessness and then the coming of the Son of God and it's going somewhere. And this is where we live, Father. And so, Lord God, as believers, help us to be awake. Help us to be alert. Help us to be prepared. God, help us to be lovers of God. Help us to love you, Lord. Lord, I, so many times, Lord God, I get distracted too, Lord. I, I forget. I get caught up in ministry and just kind of running around. My heart gets drawn to other things. But Lord God, but even right now, starting right now, I want to love you. Before anything else, Lord, I want this to be the greatest call on my life, the greatest blessing, the greatest obedience, the greatest work of your spirit. I want this to be who I am, Lord. And I pray and ask that that, that would be true for everyone here. I think many of us, we need a serious readjustment. Our lives are not aligned to this. So help us, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord. And as we do every Sunday, let's just uh, spend some 
time, just a few minutes. God, please help me, God. Let's just ask God, God, please help. Please help. Every word in scripture matters. Jesus says what he means and he means what he says. And he was so clear. He said, this is the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he will hold us accountable to that. And why wouldn't we want it? It will bless us and fulfill us, energize us more than anything else. And so let's just come before the Lord and spend a few moments just asking God for help. Lord God, I, I want to make the greatest commandment the most important thing in my life because I haven't been. So can we just pray that prayer if that's true of you? Just pray that prayer and let's just ask for his help. Father God, we just come before you right now, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God will do it, brothers and sisters. It's by his grace. He will. He will sustain your love for him. He will give it to you if you don't have it, and then he will sustain it. You know, recently I was talking to um, a couple people, and they were sharing their testimony with me. And I was just so struck by how much they had been through, all the struggles. I would even say tragedies. I mean, even a fraction of that would cause other people to just drift away and forget God. And yet, it was just amazing after hearing that to see them fully walking with the Lord, serving the Lord, in the Lord's will. From what I could see, loving the Lord. And so what could explain that? other than the grace of God. God is so good. If you just reach out to him and trust him, he will do it. He will do it. No matter what you're going through, what tragedy, he will do it. And so let's just come before him right now. Um, God will do it in your life. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father.